following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. This morning we're going to be looking in uh, Matthew chapter 17. If you want to look, turn there in your Bibles, and we'll begin reading. We're actually going to start reading in... uh, the end of chapter 16, we'll be uh, focusing on uh, the first eight verses of 17, but uh, this gives some great context, so we want to back up a little bit, um, and we'll start in verse uh, 27 of verse 16, uh, chapter 16. Let's read. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribe say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, uh, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Great passage, uh, and I probably, if you've been a Christian, if you've uh, grown up in church, or if you've been discipled well, I'm probably not going to share anything with this morning with you that you're not going to go, well, I already knew that. Um, but it's uh, truth that needs to impact us. And one of the great struggles we have as Christians is that we know too many things in our head that haven't really impacted our life. Uh, and uh, we see the disciples in, uh, uh, throughout the book of Matthew up to uh, chapter uh, 17. The question has been, who is Jesus? Uh, and uh, it's hinting and pointing to him being the Messiah. And finally, in chapter 17, Peter makes this great confession or declaration. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And uh, as we saw in the parable section, uh, everything depended on their understanding on them rightly understanding who Jesus was. So this is a big step forward for the disciples, right? 
Uh, they understand now more that Jesus is, is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But it's clear that, uh, that there's still some things missing <laughs> in their understanding. And uh, Jesus has, now that they've made this, this, uh, got to this level, Jesus kind of fast-forwards their training progress, uh, training process. And uh, certainly the, the account of, of this, we call the transfiguration, Jesus taking up on the mountain, this account here, is like a supercharged lesson. And Jesus gives them uh, this amazing object lesson intended to upgrade significantly their understanding of who Jesus is. What does it mean for him to be the Messiah? Uh, so, uh, but, but it's interesting how, how and, and one of the things that we see here is how hard it is for us to understand more. Because even with Jesus glowing in the dark, I mean, Jesus radiating light, Peter is still not quite catching on to what this is really all about. And so poor Peter always, always got something to say that just gives away his life. So let's, let's look at this and see how, uh, how Peter may have, and the, James and John may have first understood this amazing event and what, what in the end God wanted them to understand about who Jesus is and what his mission is about. So let's jump in, uh, and we want to touch just briefly, as I said, on, on these last two verses, because it, it's important. It ties into this, 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 um, this account. Uh, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Clearly looking towards the end, when Jesus returns with his angels, uh, and, and there's a great resurrection of the dead, and Jesus will judge all people. And he will repay, he will reward each according to what they've done. Those who walk in faith and have become uh, citizens of the kingdom, children of God, he will repay with righteousness and with the reward of eternal life. For those who reject Jesus and who do not understand who he is, who do not give him uh, worship as the king and as God, will fall into judgment. Right? But it's interesting here that he says specifically that he will come in the glory of his Father. Hang on to those words. And then it goes on and says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, so he's speaking to the twelve, most likely, uh, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, and this verse, linked with the verse before, uh, could make it sound like Jesus is saying here, some of you will still be alive when Jesus returns on that great day of judgment. Well, we all know 2,000 years have gone by, and just to check, is Peter in the audience this morning? Peter, James, John? Right? No, we're all pretty sure that they are all dead, right? That they did not live 2,000 years, right? So, so there's some confusion. How could they see the kingdom if Jesus um, tarried so long, right? Well, it's interesting. Verse 1 of chapter 17 starts off, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and there Jesus was transfigured, transformed. Uh, Matthew, and we know the book of Matthew, is not very chronological. In other words, Matthew didn't try to lay out in the order of events Jesus' life. Rather, Matthew arranges his material by themes and by topics. So we have these teaching sections uh, interspersed with these miraculous sections of Jesus demonstrating his power. And then back to a teaching section, right? And so... Matthew's not at all concerned about the order of events. So when Matthew says, six days later, this ought to catch our attention. 
Because this is a time marker that's pretty rare in Matthew. Why does he say that? Well, certainly one reason is that he's trying to connect uh, verse 28 with verse 1. Right? I say to you, some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And six days later, Jesus is glowing in the dark. Okay? So um, at some level, uh, this is a fulfillment. I don't think at, at, at the complete or highest level, but there is some sense in which uh, this is at least a partial fulfillment of, of them seeing Jesus in kingdom glory. That doesn't mean that the whole kingdom is returning. It doesn't mean Jesus is coming with his angels, for sure. It doesn't mean judgment. Uh, praise God, that hasn't happened yet. And so we get to be a part of the kingdom. Uh, but, but clearly Jesus is revealing himself in kingdom glory. Right? They get a glimpse of Jesus as he truly is, not just as man, but as the man God. Right? So uh, so Jesus uh, makes this revelation to them. And it's not all of them. It's only three, right? Uh, for whatever reason, he selects his three inner circle. And it says they climb to the top of a high mountain. There's a lot of debate on which mountain. It doesn't really matter. The point is it was high enough and far enough away from everybody else that what Jesus is going to show them will be visible only to these three. No crowds, no spectators, no bystanders will see this. Not even the other, other disciples. Right? This is for, for these three specifically. They're given this extra vision of revelation. And it's significant. What Jesus shows them here is huge. Uh, and, and so he, he significantly up, upgrades and, uh, their, their understanding. And what happens is Jesus is transformed. He is changed before them. And it says his face shines like the sun. I don't know what that would have been like, but just imagine... If my face started shining like the sun, that would be scary, wouldn't it? Like, not just sunburn, but like, uh, not shining from the sun. But I mean, like, radiating light. Radiating light, right? That would be impressive. And not only Jesus' skin, but also even his clothes were dazzling white. Like, shining, right? Like, uh, he is illuminating light itself, right? Um, And, uh, of course, we know... Because we have uh, the whole rest of the Bible and a lot of time in history, we know that what Jesus is doing here is he is pulling back the curtain and he is revealing his heavenly glory. Remember, it said that Jesus will come in what the glory of his Father, and so here he is, not not with his angels. So again, this is not that fulfillment. He's with the glory of the Father, something of his heavenly glory and being being revealed, right? So that it's not just. Uh, a human Jesus anymore. Now all of a sudden there's something very, very heavenly, very otherworldly about him. Um, but how, it's important to think about how uh, initially Peter, James, and John understood this. Like what did they think when Jesus started shining like this? Well, it's possible they thought, well, this is God. This is God come in human flesh. Uh, and that was the intended purpose, <laughs> actually. But I'm not sure that's really how they thought of it. It's very possible that they thought, wow, Jesus is some kind of heavenly being. And God was not the only person in the, in the Old Testament who often showed up radiating light. Uh, this was true of oftentimes angelic visitations where angels would appear and they would be shining like this. So maybe Peter, James, and John thought, wow, Jesus is like, like he's a little, he's, he's part of another world, right? Maybe he's some kind of angelic being who's come to be with us, right? 
Uh, and then um, uh, it says that uh, also appear, appearing are, uh, on the scene are Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, we have no idea how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Was Moses, like, carrying around the Ten Commandments? That'd be kind of a giveaway. Uh, I don't know what, what was going on. Or they had name tags. Or maybe in heaven, you know, we just, we'll just see there'll be something so about our nature that we just, we just radiate who we are. I don't know. But um, they knew it was Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. Um, uh, these are arguably two of the greatest characters of the Old Testament, right? Uh, both Moses and Elijah saw God face to face, which is important in this context, right? These are two guys who had gone up on mountains, uh, both of them actually on, on Sinai or Horeb, and had encountered, had face to face encounters with God where they saw something of God's glory. And they experienced very directly God's immediate presence that was life-changing for both of these guys. Um, They both were uh, communicators. They both heard God's message, and they passed it on to to, to Israel. And they were spokesmen. And and Moses himself actually was a, uh, really the first, stood in the first priestly role between God and the Israelites. Uh, so that's significant. So, so these are big guys. They both did incredible miracles, right? Moses, uh, all the miracles of, uh, of Egypt, of the Exodus, uh, going through the Red Sea, uh, uh, striking the rock and the water coming out, make, uh, the, the manna, all this stuff. Impressive miracles that marvel or that rival the kind of things Jesus has been doing. And Elijah, likewise, raises the dead. And just some really bizarre things, actually, that are very miraculous, so, uh, so maybe, uh, we don't know for sure, but maybe Peter, James, and John are thinking, wow, he's from another world, and he's like on a level with Moses and Elijah. Now that, that uh, humanly speaking, would not be an insult. Like, that's saying a lot about Jesus. Like, he is right up there with the very best and most significant characters of the Old Testament. Um, and Peter, in all his enthusiasm about all of this, uh, just has to open his mouth and start blabbering. And he says, hey, it's really good we're here. Let's build three little huts and have a sleepover. So that's my translation of what he said. Um, let's have a sleepover. Let's have a little camp out. And uh, as he sees Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, maybe, and I don't know, and the Bible doesn't say this, I, I will confess I'm reading a bit into this, but perhaps uh, he is thinking, we could have a little mini retreat. And, and Jesus, I think Moses and Elijah could help you out. Because you're like really confused about this Messiah thing. And maybe God sent these guys to straighten you out. You know, work out your theology about the Messiah. Because after all, these are the two great figures of the Old Testament. Right? Maybe they could, they could, they could give you some counsel and some guidance about being Messiah. Right? Because these are big dudes. Big guns from the Old Testament. Right? Uh, I don't know for sure that that's what Peter's thinking, but I do know this. Peter is not thinking, well, I just saw the revelation of Jesus who is God Almighty, right? Who is high and above Moses and Elijah and every angel. We know Moses is, uh, Moses, yeah. Uh, we know Moses is thinking that. However, Peter is not, right? Peter is not thinking that. And we'll see in a minute why I think that. Uh, I think Peter is greatly missing the point. Right? 
And as he's babbling on, I love it, God, God puts a stop to it. God interrupts him. This bright, brilliant cloud overshadows them, which, by the way, most clouds, the way they work, they're dark. They block out the sun. Right? So when a cloud comes over you, it usually brings a dark shadow. But this brought a brilliant light because it was full of the radiance of what? The glory of the Father. And God says these amazing things as he cuts Peter short. He says, uh, Behold, uh, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? Um, God speaks, don't you get it, Peter? Shut up and listen. Would you just shut up and pay attention? Okay, this is my beloved son in whom I take great delight and pleasure. Listen to him. Uh, This is the kind of cloud of glory that appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, When God filled the tabernacle, he did it by coming down in this cloud of glory. And so here we see the very presence of God uh, meeting with them. And saying, look, this is my beloved son. Uh, Listen to him. And it's a terrifying presence. And the result of it is that Peter, James, and John immediately fall on their faces. Fall on their faces in terror. Okay, someone perhaps in worship, uh, certainly this is a form of worship. This kind of terror is is worship, right? But uh, they're, they're terrified. They are quaking in fear. Uh, and that was that, that's that's the effect of the immediate presence of God for frail, uh, weak, sinful human beings. Right? And one of the reasons I'm convinced that Peter really wasn't getting who Jesus was is it wasn't until this point that Peter falls down in awe and worship and terror. Right? Like if he had really understood who Jesus was in the first place, that's what he should have done then. He should have fallen down at Jesus' feet in awe. And even terror and said, cried out, Lord, you are God. Right? But he, he missed that. He, he missed that point. Um, uh, then all of a sudden the scene uh, returns to normal. And Jesus comes to Peter and James and John and he touches them. He says, don't be afraid. And then it ends, the account ends with, and they saw no one but Jesus only. And the Greek emphasizes that word. They saw no one but Jesus only. Right? And so it should start to dawn on him that, uh, that he is greater than Moses and Elijah. Right? He is greater than the angels. He is unique alone as God's son. Um, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Do you understand who he really is? Uh, and then it finishes with this account as they were coming down the mountain Jesus commanded them to tell no one. Uh, Jesus does not want to reveal his deity until after the resurrection. He doesn't want them to know who he fully is until uh, the the resurrection and the cross uh, confirm it. So he says, don't tell anyone. Don't even tell the other disciples. But they have a question. And and so uh, it says, then uh, they're following up what Jesus just said. And Jesus says, by the way, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Okay, there's that topic again. Glorious God, uh, this vision of God they just saw. But Jesus is still talking about the cross. He says, you don't tell anybody this until I rise again from the dead, which means I'm going to die. Right? And so the disciples are puzzling all of this. They're trying to sort out, 
Jesus, you know, God's son, this vision of glory, how could he die? And, and, and Jesus says to them, well, well, they ask the question, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Uh, and this comes from uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, where Malachi prophesied, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Uh, so there was this prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah, before the end day. Uh, and in Malachi, it says that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. He will come uh, proclaiming a message of restored relationships. But it's interesting, between Malachi and some 400 years later, when Jesus showed up, scribal teaching had taken this to a whole other level. And they had dropped off the word restored relationships and, and replaced it with restored all things. It's not actually what Malachi prophesied. But they're thinking of, of this Elijah figure coming as a political restorer who would, in their minds, restore the kingdom of Israel. Uh, so that was a misunderstanding of the prophecy, partly. Uh, but Jesus corrects them. He says, no, uh, you're right. Uh, Elijah must come. Uh, uh, but actually, Elijah has come. Uh, and uh, they re- did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So likewise, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood, good word, they understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Elijah came. And maybe they're thinking, you know, if Elijah comes and he restores all things, maybe you won't have to die, right? Maybe we just wait long enough, Elijah will come and he'll fix it, and then uh, the Messiah won't have to die. But Jesus says, no, Elijah did come and they killed him. And they're, they're going to kill me. Right? That's, that's the path I am on. Um, so who is this Jesus? What, what, what is this glorious, uh, over-the-top object lesson intended to teach the disciples about the nature and mission and character of Jesus? Uh, well, let's, let's look at uh, four things that I think they were supposed to understand about Jesus uh, that, that we must understand. Right? Four things about who Jesus is that we must know and believe. First, that Jesus shares the Father's glory. Jesus shares the Father's glory. Uh, He is shining like the sun. Uh, It is symbolic of of heavenly glory, but more so it is symbolic of the Father's glory. He will come, verse 27, with the angels in the glory of his Father. Not because it was a borrowed glory, but because the glory of the Father and the glory of Jesus are one and the same, right? The cloud that covers the mountain was bright. It was full of glory. It's the glory of the Father. It's also the glory of Jesus, right? It is the very glory of God himself. Uh, the point of this object lesson was not that Jesus is on a level with Moses, not that he's one of the great three of all time. Instead, that he is the one and only great one. Higher, greater than Moses and Elijah. Uh, When all is said and done, Jesus alone is left. Listen to him alone. Right? Um, And and the point of this is that Jesus is God. He shares God's glory because he is God. He's the eternally existent one. Or as it says in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God 
the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. And he is God. He was, he was God from all eternity past. Uh, before he took on human flesh and blood, he was the creator God who made the universe. Philippians 2.6, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? Jesus never said, boy, I wish I could be like God, <laughs> because he was God, right? He never, he never thought, I wish I could be equal with God, because he was already equal with God. In every way, he is in his nature God eternal. Uh, before a single molecule of the universe was created, Jesus existed with the Father and the Spirit through all eternity as eternal God. Uh, and that's what this vision reveals. Right? That's what they should have come away with. When we're looking at Jesus, we are looking at God himself. Come to this earth in human flesh. Um, right? Had they really understood that, they should have fallen on their faces when they just beheld the glory of Jesus. Right? Instead of saying, hey, let's have a camp out and maybe your advisors can straighten you out. Again, that's not what the Bible says. That's my, my twist. But uh, something was not full in their vision. Right? They, they were missing it. Um, although I, I, I think they got it after God spoke. Right? They, God straightened them out. Um, and and uh, it's hard because all through the Gospels we see so clearly Jesus' humanity. Right? Jesus was God, but his glory was veiled. It was, it was shut behind the curtain so they couldn't see it. Philippians 2.7 continues on with this. Okay, so he did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Right, so the reality is we see clearly in the Gospels and fully the humanity of Jesus. He was in every way a, a living human being. Um, and here's the problem that was, it was a problem for the disciples, and I think it's a problem for us. That the humanity of Jesus so overshadows our view of him that we fail to really fully grasp his deity, right? And, and it's natural because we get his humanity. Like he had a body, I have a body, I can relate to that. Uh, you know, he was born, he grew up, he experienced things in life that we experience, I can relate to that. It's hard for me to relate to his deity. Right? Uh, what does it mean for him to live in heaven, to share the glory of the Father? Those are things are hard for us. We've got to be super careful that we don't see Jesus so much as, as just a man and it becomes out of balance with a view of his deity, his divine nature, his godness. Right? He was God. And I hear people sometimes talk about Jesus like he's their best buddy pal, uh, where they brought him down to the same level as them. Right? And, and he's human. He is our friend. Uh, he is family. But he is also Lord and maker of the universe. Right? And we have to keep those two things in balance. Right? He, he is not our buddy. Right? He's our God who came to us in human form because he loved us. Right? So, so let's be careful. Let's not be like Peter who was so fixed on his humanity that even with him radiating light, 
He missed his divinity. He missed his godness. Second thing, he is a dearly loved son. Uh, I should have, I could have just preached a whole sermon just on this one phrase, dearly loved son, in whom I delight. Listen to him. Powerful words. Let's, let's think just a few minutes about this. Uh, what does it mean to be a dearly loved son? And, and loved here by a father who is God, right? So maybe some of you had a father that was not perfect. Maybe some of you had a father who was terrible. And so it's hard for you to understand a father's love because that's been broken for you. But I'm telling you, God is perfect. And when God loved as a father, it was without flaw, right? It was full and complete and rich, right? The love of a father towards a child. And really, what is the love of a perfect father towards his son? Well, while, while our fathers may not have been perfect, thank goodness, as parents, we're better. We're better, right? <laughs> like an, we as parents certainly know what it means to love our children. We know that it means you seek the very best for that child. And it doesn't matter how many times they mess up or how many stupid things they do, right? You still hope, keep hoping and working towards the very best for your child. If you're a parent, you know that. You just know you would do anything to see them be successful and do well. That's the heart of a parent for the child. But it's also kind of relationship where you do life together. Um, you know, we, we, sh- we ought to love our children. We ought to love to be with them. Now, there are and can be sinful little brats. I mean, people. Uh, and maybe sometimes they, they, they test our patience. And maybe sometimes it's tempting to think, I think you need to go to a boarding school in, in, you know, in Africa. Um, it might be tempting sometimes. But, but really, a parent-child, it's about a relationship. It's about doing life together. It's about sharing together in their, and enjoying their company. When he says, this is my son in whom I delight, there's something there about a quality of relationship that they enjoy being in that relationship together. They enjoy that exchange of love and communication and, and, and relationship. And it's paying great attention to what your child is doing, right? Uh, in who, I take great delight, great pleasure in my son. Uh, when, when, our, when, we were, when Denise and I were first having children and our, our, our children were little tiny babies and, and we, 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 took, we delighted in our children. I mean, we just... We just were in awe of everything that they did. And my, my one sister-in-law used to just mock us. And she's actually, she still does. She still teases us about how we doted over our little babies, right, when they were first born. And like, did you see? She put her hand in her mouth. Did you see that? Wasn't that the coolest thing ever? She just makes fun of us still, right? Oh, she sat up for almost a whole second. For, she fell over. Did you see that? We were so excited. We were so Interest. We were so tuned into everything that they did, right? That's the love of a parent towards a child, right? Uh, in awe of them and, and so interested in everything about them. And, and, and parent-child relationship is about sharing together in the same purpose and goals as they grow up. Like as adults, especially in Jesus' day, oftentimes the children would, uh, would grow up and they would, they would join into a partnership in the family business, whether it was farming or, or you know, shoemaker, or as Jesus became a carpenter with his father. And he would share in the mission and business and purpose of life together, on mission together, in business together. Right? 
And, and so that's, these are all pictures of, of God the Father and God the Son. Right? The Father delights. They share relationship. There's this exchange of love and of common mission and purpose. Right? Um, and what this tells us about God is not only does Jesus share in the glory of God, but it tells us something about the nature of God himself. And that is that God is a triune or three-in-one God. Right? And the only way that God could have this relationship as father and son is if there were two persons, who, or three, as we know, who make up this being called God. God is not one-dimensional. Right? He is one being, but he exists in three unique and distinct persons. And when we use the phrase unique and distinct persons, what we mean by that is that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Right? They are distinct beings. Right? So on the mountain, the voice could call out of the cloud, this is my Son, speaking of Jesus, in whom I take delight. And, and Jesus, Jesus wasn't doing some kind of ventriloquism trick, you know, where he made his voice go into the cloud. This is my Son. No, he wasn't doing some trick. It was God, a separate person, saying, this is my Son whom I love. Right? Um, this is a vital uh, doctrine for Christians. Right? And, and it's a confusing one, and it's one that we oftentimes have a hard time explaining, and I'm not going to try to explain it. I'm just telling you it's true. One God who shares together this one glory, they, they share that nature and that glory together, but they exist in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see two of those persons in this account, distinctly separate and having different experiences on that mountaintop. One is a son who's being affirmed by his father. One by the father who's, uh, who's declaring the love for his son. Right? Uh, it, why does that matter? Well, it's important we understand that what, uh, what oftentimes the Trinity gets broken down to is that it's one God who wears three hats. Like sometimes he wears the father hat. Sometimes he wears the son hat. Sometimes he, he, he wears the Holy Spirit hat, right? Sometimes he pretends or he acts like he's a son. But then he switches real quick and he acts like he's the father. Well, that, that is not the Trinity. And it breaks down at the very core who God is. And here's the thing. God is love and God is relational because he is three persons in an intimate, loving relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If God's just changing hats, he cannot be a God of relationship. And he also can't ultimately, at the very core of his essence, be a God of love. Uh, if you don't believe me, uh, compare the doctrines of Allah. Right? Allah, the God of Islam, is, told, is spoken of being uh, righteous. He is spoken of being almighty. He is spoken of being merciful. He is not in the core of his being considered loving. Uh, and he is certainly not considered at the core of his being being relational. Why? Because he's a lonely God who's existed in all eternity all by himself and decided, until he decided to make people. Right? He can't in the core of his being, in the core of his nature, be relational when he's a, a lonely, lonely guy. Right? But we don't worship that kind of God. Right? We worship God who is, who is at the very core of his being a God of relationship, of community and communion with other beings, with other persons in himself. Right now, how is that possible? I don't know. Right, he's God. Right, he's God. I don't know how it's possible. 
And we have to remember that God is indescribable. He is incomprehensible. And the reality is that if we can explain God fully, if we can figure him out completely, uh, we have created an idol. We are not worshiping the true and living God. And, and I think if you, if you mess with the Trinity, you, you come awfully close to worshiping a God who's an idol, who's not the God of the Bible. Right? It is a big deal. And it shapes who we are as people. God calls us to be relational, not because he just thought, well, I can't do this, but it seems like such a good idea. Well, I'll create you. Why don't you be relational? No. He created us that way in his image because it's who he is. He created us as parents with children because that's who he is, who loves his children, and he's in relationship, and, and he shares life together and mission together, right? Um, <clears throat> third thing, I'll do this one faster. He's a hands-on kind of friend. Jesus is a hands-on kind of friend, right? After the, the vision, the voice, uh, everything disappears as Jesus only. And I love how Jesus comes to them. He goes to them, and he does what the voice in the cloud could not do. The effect of the voice in the cloud is to left them shivering on the ground in a pool of fear and trembling, right? But Jesus, the man, you know, puts the, you know, empties himself again, covers the veil again, covers the glory, so he's back to a person that, well, he was always, but they don't see the glory, and he comes to them as a person, and he touches them. And he encourages them. He, he gives them strength. He says, don't be afraid. Right? There's things that Jesus, as the incarnate God, can do for us. That God the Father, mighty God, brilliant in glory, cannot. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that God would take on, put himself in human flesh so that he could be that to us. And we might say, well, yeah, Jesus doesn't come touch me. Well, granted, he's in heaven, uh, but he sent his spirit, and, and, and he identifies with us because of his humanity, and he does comfort us. He does encourage us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where Jesus is, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? Jesus can meet us and can identify with us uh, because he took on human flesh. Fourthly, last thing, uh, his glory does not change his mission. Right? In fact, it makes his mission possible, right? Um, I, I love uh, their idea, and they're questioning about Elijah. Look, you know, Elijah, when he comes back, he can do the whole going to the cross thing, right? I vote Elijah. Let's vote. How many want to send Elijah to the cross? Let's send him. You know, let's, Jesus, you don't have to do this, right? Uh, but was it possible for Elijah, even a, a resurrected Elijah, or a Moses to go to the cross? No, right? It wasn't a sufficient sacrifice. Their life for ours would not have been enough because they were just human. Only Jesus could do it because he was the perfect spotless lamb of God. 
because he was God, because he was infinite God, he could give his life and it would be enough. Not just for one person, but for all humanity. Right? But, but what a picture, right? Uh, this is Jesus in glory, the very glory of God the Father, the very beloved of the Father. And yet he came to this earth to go to the cross for us. That was his very purpose and mission. And what about God the Father, who dearly loved his Son, uh, but did not spare him and gave him up for us? Did it mean that God didn't love Jesus that much? No, he loved him as a father loves a child. But God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would perish but have eternal life. And God's words to Peter and James and John, listen to him. Listen to him. This, this is Jesus, God, eternal God, full of the Father's glory, who emptied himself and came and took on human flesh for us so that he could go to the cross. Why would we not listen to him? Right? Why would we not devote our whole life to soaking up every word of his teaching and building and shaping our life upon its truth. Right? Let me just close by reading Hebrews 4, uh, 1, 1 through 4, which just puts us all into such clear focus. Uh, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's just worship. Let's listen to that. If we really knew who Jesus was, how could we not just fall on our faces before him and worship him? Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.